0: It is equally as intellectually lazy to reject everything you hear as it is to accept everything you hear. It's much harder to ask questions. And that's unfortunate because that should be a fundamental feature of what it is to be human in the 21st century. And it doesn't appear to be so.
1: Hey. And welcome to Simbi Foundation's podcast, Impact in the 21st Century, the show that brings you stories of positive impact from the world's leading innovators, activists, authors, and entrepreneurs. Each episode is a chance for you to listen to inspiring and impactful individuals talk about the positive impact they've made and how they made it. I'm Aaron Friedland, your host of Impact in the 21st Century and founder of Simbi Foundation, a nonprofit organization that collaborates with the UN to build digital solar power classrooms called Brightboxes to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. To those of you returning for another episode, thank you for being part of this community and for taking the time out of your day to listen to our podcast. It's listeners like you that inspire us to share more impactful stories. And if this is your first time listening, welcome. We're so happy to have you here. And if you enjoy the podcast, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the awesome and inspiring guest list we have lined up for you. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. And I'm excited to be joined by Neil deGrasse Tyson. His newest book is Letters from an Astrophysicist. He's also the host of an incredible podcast, Star Talk Radio. And you may have seen him on his incredible show, Cosmos, on National Geographic. Neil, thanks for joining me today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Delighted.
1: So I thought you were going to be wearing a shirt or a tie or something that has Starry Nights somewhere. Oh, <laughs> well, it's on my
0: smartphone. Uh, and also I don't, I try not to compete with other imagery that could be uh, sending signals to the, in the interview. So uh, just, just one at a time is enough, I think.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff. So I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds of thousands of hours of you online. Terrible. <laughs> yes. video. Just a view. And if someone wanted the spark notes of who you are and your journey from a student at Bronx High School of Science to essentially a world famous and renowned astrophysicist, what would you tell them?
0: Yeah, by the way, almost all of what's online, apart from the Star Talk episodes that I host, was uploaded by other people. So I don't have my own YouTube channel, okay? There might be one with my name on it, but I didn't create it and I have nothing to do with it. Uh, it would generally, things like that are sort of fan driven, And so I'm flattered that that occurs. Um, So what I did about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, I sort of curated all of this content and I posted a Facebook note that listed the links to long format interviews that I felt best captured everything that I think and say and represent in my life and all the things that people might try to staple together in the little bits that are out there. And so it's a, it's a list of long format video links and because not all of knowledge comes in sound bites. So, uh, so that's, that's online and maybe you could put the link to that uh, at the bottom of this, uh, this um, posting. So, th- so I did that. I did that. And it's about, and in there, there might be how many, uh, 50 hours or so. It's still a lot of content. But uh, since it's curated, there's very little overlap from one posting to the next. And each one explores a different place in, in the Neil deGrasse Tyson universe.
1: All right. But if someone wanted to understand, I mean, how you go from a student at the Bronx School of Science to, to where you are today, can you, can you tell us a little bit about some of the some of the important junctures that have taken place in your journey to get to you to be the, the most famous astrophysicist that exists today.
0: Um, yeah, so uh, juncture implies that there's a, an abrupt change. And I would say almost everything in my life that has led to where I am today has been smooth and steady, So there've been influential moments such as when I first discovered the night sky in the Hayden planetarium in New York city. So that, that was significant for sure. Um, But since then it's been this unending quest to learn more and more about what the universe is and how and why it works. And upon realizing that to pursue that to its limits, Requires a PhD and then the PhD became part of my trajectory before that oh, I need to know more math and more math became part of the trajectory so so my life's arc accreted the goals that I would learn would be necessary to become an, an expert in 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 modern astrophysics so now that itself doesn't get you known by the public, that gets you the expertise. The getting known part, was that was not a goal at all, really. It was a consequence of thinking hard about how people think and how they learn. So when I get interviewed, and I, about anything in the universe, And I give my answer and they take that back to the editing room and they put together their documentary. If you resonated more with me than with others interviewed, chances are it's because I reached a part of your, your receptors, your your receptors of curiosity that I already thought about. And so I framed my sentences, the words I chose the rhythm of the, of the of the of that the the, the pace that the information mm-hmm. unfolds and They then are received by you and you say wow I never knew that I never knew I could learn that I want to learn more So then you come back for more. And so what happened is after the first Documentary i live in New York City. It's a there's a lot of media that goes on there well, You know, it, by the way, it's not just documentaries if there's an eclipse or black hole is discovered, then the press wants a quote. So in the early days, they just wanted a quote from somebody. All right. And I had expertise and I offered the quote, but then they kept coming back. And each time they came back, I asked myself, well, how can I do better? And how can I, Oh, here's a new thing that everybody knows about in pop culture. Maybe I can fold that in and then they'll care about this more. If I link it to what they already know in advance that they care about. So, it's, I attribute it to the simple fact of caring how people learn and how people think. And that's how I shape what I deliver to them. And I, the, the data set for this was many years of sitting in an airplane and then the conversation strikes up and someone asks, well, what do you do? And I say, "Oh, well, I do astrophysics. And then all of a sudden the questions start pouring out. Or oh, are there aliens? Is there God? Is there an outcome, this whole barrage? And so I would take the questions one by one, but I'd monitor uh, my answers or how they were receiving my answers. Are their are there eyebrows going up? Are they leaning in? Or are they sort of leaning back and... Waiting you know for the flight attendant to take their next order what is what is the reaction function that I can read in their behavior and I collected that, I collected the successes and discarded the 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 what didn't work and this forms a pool of resources I think of it as my utility belt that I draw from anytime i'm communicating with anybody so that's my Long answer to your very simple question about what um, what forces operated on how I ended up
1: landing where I have. Thank you. Uh, it's it's fascinating that you go into depth on that, and I really appreciate you doing so. Specifically because I think there's a lot of people who, you know, what we put out is ultimately what we receive, and so you can have you you can have a let's say a shittier attitude. You can ask people instead of. What are they passionate about? You can ask them, what do you do? And you can consistently get a somewhat boring or a response that they're not so keen on even giving. And if you're not essentially reading that utility function that you're describing or that reaction that you're describing, and you're not optimizing it with each additional encounter, you're not learning. And uh, so I love that you speak to that. And then- Well, that's the
0: difference between um, lecturing to someone and communicating with them and so for me uh, if you want to distinguish those two cases it's obvious but just for the for for completeness let me declare that if you're a professor at the front of the room and you face the chalkboard or whatever they're made of today and you just write on the board and you never look back uh, that's lecturing that's why to this day nobody likes being lectured to that's it's an that you insult someone by accusing them of lecturing to you. stop lecturing me. I don't say lect- So meanwhile, you spent time in college. If you went to college every day, hearing lectures. So the concept of a lecture is it somehow became bad, not good in the act of learning. So if instead as a professor, you face the audience and you monitor their reactions and are they responding to you? Then that's more of a contract between you and they. Are you meeting them halfway? Are you meeting them three quarters of the way? Of course, they paid to be in your class, so you don't have to do any of this, right? They'll. they'll have, but if if you're interested, then you will. As a professor, you will put in that extra effort. And uh, I, I remember this, this is just a, if I can tell a quick story. Absolutely. I got a an award from the American. Society of Physics Teachers, or APT, I forgot the, the, the abbreviation for it, but these are teachers who, they're in high school, summer, in teaching colleges, and they all teach physics, and I, I got an award from them. I was very honored by this. Um, I think it even included a couple of dollars, right? <laughs> so you get a check. <laughs> Awards are best when they come with a check, um, but they, um, I commented that uh, because I care about how people think, I just took a poll. Right. by the way, this is well before the internet was big in society. I took a poll and I say, these are physics teachers. I said, how many of you don't own a television? And a third of the hands went up. And I said, of those who remain, who own a television, how many of you never really look at it, except maybe if you rent a movie? half the hands went up again, half of the remaining half. So now we're down to a third. Of the third, about how many hours a week do you watch? Zero to five, five to 10? Took care of everybody in the zero to five and five to 10. Meanwhile, their students watched 30 hours of TV a week, minimum. And I said, you're trying to communicate with a demographic that has this persistent daily exposure and you have no idea what that exposure is. You have no idea what you're competing with in in messages, in images, in ideas that they confront confront every day of their lives. So I challenge them to just be a little more aware of what their students are thinking and doing, rather than say, and we know we've heard this, the students today, they just don't want to learn. It, all right, if you're an educator and you say that, you should have a different job. Get out of the classroom, if that's what you think. Because, by the way, maybe they don't want to learn. It's your job to inspire them to learn. That's how I feel about it. I'm sorry to get, I don't want to get angry with you. It sounded like I'm no, screaming, no, I'm happy You are. I'm
1: happy you are. <laughs> yeah. I-
0: yeah. So, so, um, oh, and then one of them came up to me almost in denial. This is after the ceremony and said, What research do you know that shows that students learn better the more TV they watch? And I said, That's not what I said. I didn't say anything at all about that. So, this, he could not. And I know I said it pretty clearly, okay? But he, he could not embrace what I said. I said, that's not what I said. I said, if you want to know, if you want to communicate with your students, you should know what their influence is on them. Not that you should watch 30 hours. You should just know what are the hit shows? What are the popular shows among the kids? Um, and who are the, who are the lead characters? And what are the themes? You don't have to watch 30 hours of programming to, to know that. And that's a small increment on your day anyway. So if you don't wanna be a better communicator, go ahead, keep lecturing to the chalkboard.
1: There you go. I'm so happy that you've taken us on this tangent and I wanna stay here for a little bit. Uh, so just to give you or to er erase some of the information asymmetry that exists between us, I am- uh, I like that informational asymmetry, I like that. Uh, Uh, So uh, I'm I'm a PhD candidate in econometrics, so did go to, have gone to college and still am. Um, and on top of that, I taught uh, economics at the college level for three years. And, you know, when you're standing in front of a class and you're teaching diminishing marginal returns and you see blank faces, you know that you need to change the way that you're communicating this. And I truly believe, and I, and I love what you're saying here, that if, you're, if, if your learners are not learning you are failing as an educator. And but it's they're not free.
0: learning from you. If you make them have to go out and take three books and get tutoring, you know, you'll still get paid. But I think you, you violated the educator student contract by doing so.
1: Couldn't agree with you more. On that note, what is one thing that you're just constantly thinking about? Just one item that is just constantly turning around in your mind. It could be a theme, it could be an idea.
0: Yeah, I wonder whether we have enough intelligence as a species, well, two things. There's the practical one and the less practical one. I wonder if we have enough wisdom as a species to become better shepherds of our own civilization so that we don't just survive the future, that we will thrive in the future, in harmony with the world that has supported us for a hundred thousand years. So that's, I think about that often. And a a sidelight of that, I wonder if we are smart enough, if the human brain is smart enough to actually figure out all that can be figured out in the universe. If we, by some measures, I don't, necessarily agree with this statement, but let's just accept it for the moment, that humans are the only sort of, uh, we are the first smart species ever to be on earth, okay? We can define that in such a way that it's true, okay? Like we have technology and, okay, we have libraries so we can pass information forward. So let's, let's make that the criterion, all right, rather than debate it. Let's just assume that for the moment. All right. If we're the first ones to have that ability, who are we to believe that that's sufficient smarts to figure out the hardest problems in the universe? Who are we to believe that we're even smart enough to know what questions to ask? I'd lose sleep every now and then, at least once a week contemplating whether there's, if we meet an alien species that comes to visit us and they're a little bit more smart than us, just kind of the way we are compared to chimpanzees. When I say a little bit genetically, what do we have 99.5% identical DNA with chimps? If it's not that, it's 98%. Whatever the number is, it's high. So you want to say, well, that 2% difference, look what a difference that makes, right? They swing on trees and we have the Hubble telescope and art and poetry and philosophy. All right, so now find a species that's 2% beyond us on that same scale. What do we look like to them? What uh, we wouldn't be able to understand their simplest thoughts any more than a chimp can understand our simplest thoughts. What's our simplest thoughts? Okay, it's like... uh, Aaron, uh, let's have coffee tomorrow on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, and we'll do a podcast thereafter. And then I'll go home, and you finish your day. That's a pretty simple sentence that any two of us could exchange with each other. And that is there's no way a chimp will have any concept of anything that happened in that sentence. What's coffee? What's a corner? What's Hollywood? What's Vine? What's a podcast? What's a oh you're taking an airplane? What's an airplane? How do you get there? What what's a car? They can't. They're not. right, so another species that has that kind of increment in intelligence above us would not even classify us as intelligent. I want to know what problems are easy to them, what problems challenge them, what questions they're asking that we don't even dream of asking because our intelligence is incapable
1: of getting there. Wow. <laughs> Although just to just to push on that for a moment, in terms of our simplest thoughts that I, I believe we do share with chimps, for example, food, good. And then and then you have a chimp who is in a tree and it's essentially doing a cost benefit analysis at a rapid rate to determine, you know, how, what's the distance from the tree from the floor? How far am I from the lions? How hungry am I? Is it worth getting out this tree?
0: So in, in terms sure, of- but that's sure, but that's a primal urge. You know, right. food, sex, and shelter, right? These are primal urges and you don't have to be human to have those urges. So if that's how you want to equate us with chimps, fine. You could equate us with pigs and spiders. And I mean, th- then there's not, you're not really making the genetic point that I'm making that there are things, there are sentences we can utter that would be a very low level sentence. That would be incomprehensible to a chimpanzee. And this urge to find food, our our pre-toddlers do that. So what you're saying is smart chimps are the same as human pre-toddlers. I'm fine with that. And let's extend that. The smartest of this other species I'm inventing for this conversation, excuse me, the smartest human has about the same smarts as the pre-toddler, uh, a community of this species that's a little bit smarter than us. That's where the equation lands What's in this example. The so it told? may be that aliens have visited Earth
1: and saw no sign of intelligent life and just kept going. Fair enough. Have you, have you thought of a, a name for this fictitious species? Um. So, uh,
0: yes, AI. <laughs> no, uh, no, I don't have a name for it. I don't, you know, for all we know, they'll come make us their pets. Um, I mean, why not? They'll, we'll just be entertainment for them. And if they're way smarter than us, they'll just outwit us in everything we do. And, you know, what will be trivial, they'll put a lock on a door, which will be trivial for them to figure out some mechanical lock, and it would be impossible for us. In the same way, putting a padlock (laughs) on a monkey cage Mm -hmm. and giving them the combination. They'll have no, no, it's not not happening.
1: It's not happening. And if it is AI that you're referring to, and uh, I mean, we speak about this in economics quite a bit, but if the AI is essentially told to optimize humanity for our utility or our happiness, Then they're, what, injecting us with serotonin and other strange things just to maximize that and keep us locked up in these padlock cages. Yeah, and we
0: wouldn't know and we wouldn't care. That's correct.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It'd
0: be like making us their pets.
1: It would be like Brave New World living on Soma.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's, um, so I don't think that's a likely outcome, but it's one that's certainly explorable in the storytelling of science fiction. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So something else that comes to mind when when I speak to you and when I I read your books, I I listen to your talks, I, I watch you on Cosmos and just mind is blown. You know so much at a very deep and profoundly beautiful level. And I say this because of your ability to explain it just so coherently and so beautifully and to have it resonate so well. And... Someone who's able to do that across so many different areas, I can only imagine that you love learning, or I cannot imagine why you would know so much about so many areas. Would you say that you do love learning?
0: Yeah, the great tragedy of modern times, and I've said this before, but in slightly different ways, is on your last day of school, you're joyous that summer is beginning that you don't have to go to school anymore. Or on your, that's the last day of a, a particular school year, but suppose it's the last day of school in total, and you, you're ready to graduate. I mean, there's even a song, I think it's by Alice Cooper, school's out for summer, school's <laughs> out forever. And that's that's clearly a song celebrating this fact. And the notion that so many people feel this way, if not practically everyone, that tells you that school was not a joyous experience, that school was laborious, that school was a chore, and that when they're done with school, they don't ever wanna learn ever again. And that becomes who you are and your insights and your perspective for the rest of your life. You might read a book every now and then or have someone tell you something new, but if it's not embedded in your daily goals, you, you basically ossified in your views. So for me, I was always sad at the end of a school day, at the end of a school year, when I graduated, when my only job in life was to learn, I enjoyed that. And the, so the tragedy today is that school is such that you're happy when it's over we should change what school is or how, how teaching occurs such that you are sad when it's over. That, that's the country you want to live in because they'll be making all the discoveries. <laughs> they'll be, <laughs> not only that, you want school to instill within you boundless curiosity so that every day that you're not in school, you'll have the urge to want to learn something new. And if you add up all the hours, you will not be in school in your life. It far outnumbers the hours that you were in school. So lifelong learners completely transcend anything that could have ever accumulated in a classroom. That's how I think of myself. And that's how I allocate my time
1: and my energy. Right. So I often compare gymming to learning, and by the way, I, I will say that I, I know that you have been a big gymmer because I saw I found pictures of you online. And I'm not sure when these were taken, but your <laughs> your veins in your arms, I, I it, it's impressive stuff. <laughs> so that picture was not yesterday, just to be clear. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> okay.
0: it was 40 pounds ago, um, if I were to measure time in weight gain. Um, so yeah, I, I valued... Um, what the human body could do Mm -hmm. Um, physical performance. I value athletes, you know, who doesn't love the Olympics, but I think really deeply about what each body is doing in each event and what is different about each body to perform at world-class levels, depending on the event. I think about that all the time from the gymnasts to the wrestlers, to the cyclists, to the, um, you know, you just go down the list. So, I valued the shape I was in when I was wrestling and dancing. It's a it's a combination, rare combination. I would say special combination of strength, uh, flexibility, coordination, and grace. You put all those together, you get a dancer. You know, the wrestlers don't have to be graceful, but they need to be limber and strong. So both of those combined. Um, I was in a kind of shape that um, I'd look back on and I I reflect on it. I say, why, that was, those were special times in my life. I don't try to recreate them because I know what that took. And when I was in that kind of shape, no one was publishing my books. (laughs) No one was asking me to give lectures. So that's a different chapter of my life that I deeply value, but I don't long to
1: recreate it's a really beautiful way to look at it. But uh, what, what I want to push on or wanna, what I want to speak to here is sometimes the idea of going down and gymming is is just not an attractive one. And what I need to do is I've got two activities that get me in the zone, skipping and rowing. And for me, those are just very simple things to go and do. And After 5-10 minutes, my body is warmed up, I'm primed, and I'm ready to move some heavy objects against gravity repeatedly. Now, what I find in the 21st century, which is alarming, is that when it comes to learning, what ends up happening is you get stuck in these YouTube holes and these eco-chambers and essentially just every bit of instant gratification from checking linkedin notifications to facebook notifications to instagram notifications and these distract you and they destroy your ability to think deeply and to learn and i as they distract you and i'd love to understand if you have i'm sure you have some tips and some wisdom in terms of someone who wants to be more of a lifelong learner they want to dedicate more time each day to to learning but are just struggling to do so? And any advice that you'd share on that note? Yeah, one of them, um, this one I gleaned
0: relatively recently, and it's a statement that you don't want to be true, but when you think about it, it really is true. It's if you wanna be more creative, become less productive. Just chew on that for a while I mean you could you could live a day where, so I got through all my emails and I had five meetings and I was right and I got all this done I say well did you reflect on you know did you did any deep ideas come out of you no but I was very productive see they're not commensurate um, activities um, one happens to the exclusion of the other typically um, with regard to the gym uh, oh, so I try to allocate time where I'm not being productive okay for that very reason. But with regard to the gym, um, that is my occasion where I consume almost all of the podcasts that I subscribe to. And um, I also have a rowing machine, as it seems like you do as well. Uh, I'll try to row for long stretches of time. That's when I'll catch up on a movie that everybody's talking about. That's part of my pop culture fluency. Uh, That I feed myself so that I can talk about it and possibly use it, draw from my utility belt of such references when I'm teaching or or highlighting uh, some scientific idea or principle. So so for me, the gym is is an excuse to catch up on podcasts. And I, I wonder if I would be as enthusiastic about the gym in my modern life if I didn't also play podcasts while I did it. Because what else are you doing while you're on the rowing machine? I mean, uh, you you could be thinking about your muscles, but it really is. You can multitask. (laughs) You can listen to people talking and learn from that as well as row. Now, the big problem is once Google knows you're interested in this one subject, then all of the YouTube suggestions flow out of that same subject and you don't actually broaden your horizons. So that's a, that's not only a feature, but I think it's a great scourge. Is that the right word? Scourge, 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 scourge of the internet because the diversity of thought and perspective has become narrowed simply because of what is being fed to you. And the more they feed it, the more your ideas are reinforced and the more right you think you are, even if you could be completely wrong. You just, Google is helping you find other people who think exactly as you do. So uh, that's how I slice my day at most three times a week in my day. I was doing it five days five, six days a week right now. It's three days a week for a half hour, maybe, but more typically it's one or twice a week. And I'm I'm very disappointed by that, but um, my life is not, is not really in balance. And that's also a feature Of (laughs) people say, How do you, how does, how is life work balance? There's no balance. It was never been in balance. It's always out of balance. And the out of balance is what forces me to be um, uh, innovative in all the ways I would spend my time, uh, no matter how large or small that slice of time would be. So if I'm waiting for the train, I say, All right, I got five minutes. I can take care of a certain number of this type of email in those five minutes. And then I do, Oh, I have three hours. Oh, I can start, I can write a, I can start a chapter of a book that I'm working on. That takes more creativity because three hours will uh, empower that. Oh, I have a whole day vacation. Well, I'm going to spend that with my kids, or with my wife or, um, so everything gets sliced in different ways and reassembled such that The whole system doesn't collapse, but I would never say that it was in balance.
1: All right, two questions on that note. So the first is, in terms of what you're talking about with search engine and confirmation bias, I definitely want to get there, because this is a problem, and it would be great to speak to you about. But in terms of life being in balance, you know, I get told all the time that my life is is not in balance. I, I run two organizations, a PhD and I'm doing this on the side. But to me, that's my that's my I'm happy at this level. I'm learning, I'm thriving. Who, so who dictates what is balance and what is not balance?
0: Yeah, I think life in balance is overrated. Uh, if you lead a balanced life, I think commonly what people mean by that is you have a routine each day you wake up and eat your breakfast, you go to work, you get this job done, have your meetings, come home, spend time with the kids, that, you know, spouse, Go on vacation, so that there's a, um, when it's balanced in that way, it reduces stress. That's clear. That's clear. Reduces stress, anxiety, the things that come with knowing you have to get something done, but there's not enough time in the day to complete it and that people could get angry with you or other people's are dependent on you. So this creates another level of stress and anxiety. So, um, I think balance means you have no stress, but you can ask what does stress do when you do have it? If you survive your stress rather than have your stress kill you, if you survive your stress, you're trying to come up with innovative solutions to challenging problems every single day of your life. And I don't think that's all bad, that uh, there are a lot of things I do in a day that I would have never even dreamt of uh, in a previous day, in a a previous chapter of my life, because I was not forced to have to be that inventive about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Even simple things like I only listen to my podcast when I'm in, um, in the gym. When I'm driving, I like listening to music. I like music because that just refreshes me. It refuels my, my tanks of energy. Um, I, and there are other things I like that I do as, as excursions and diversions. I think we all need some of that for sure. But I have to ask, when am I gonna shoehorn that in? Because when I'm doing that, I'm not doing everything else. So everything involves a little bit of anxiety. Um, for what it is to get stuff done in your life. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't respond. No, no, I I wouldn't um, for, I wouldn't allow people who criticize your life as being out of balance to win that exchange. If what you're doing makes you happy and if what you're doing works, even if occasionally some things fall off the table because there's too much there.
1: Well said. Well said. I want to get to search engine confirmation bias. But before we do, I want to discuss Cosmos for a moment. I I really love Cosmos. But the the problem that I have with it is that it's such an important and such an engaging show. And the information is so, so critical for humanity. But the medium by which it's communicated, being TV, being a slightly more passive medium for communication, And the fact that there is definitely a culture of folks who like to uh, let's say experience cosmos through a a slightly altered reality. And as a result, the, the amount that you comprehend and retain is reduced. And I'm wondering in this virtual world that we are now living in, what would you do? What would you change so that we could start to retain more information when we are midway or, or finishing an episode of Cosmos,
0: yeah, I I, don't, I think that's the wrong question. So I understand it as a question. I just think it's the wrong question. What you're basing that question on is, <clears throat> um, your metrics are. You start watching the show. At the end of the show, here's a quiz, okay? So here's the quiz. What did you learn? That's no, that's not how this works. So it it could work that way. And that would be a lesson plan and it would have a syllabus and it would have a, uh, and you'd have items uh, on an agenda or in a, -hmm. um, in a curriculum. Those are the conditions under which one would, and I think should ask those questions. But if I have you for, 47 minutes, 40, no, excuse me, 44 minutes in an hour. I'm not going to give you an exam at the end. No. My goal, if I only have you for 44 minutes, is to inspire you to care more about that content, to instill upon you a curiosity that you will say, wow, this was amazing. Let me go buy a book. Let me see another video. Let me go back to school. Let me change my major. These are other measures of the success of something, not how much you retain by the end of the 44 minute broadcast hour. And I get this a lot in the museum. I work at the American Museum of Natural History. Every now and then we redesign some exhibits and the educators come in and say, well, here's the national standards, and hey, we got to do this, this, that, that, and the other. And say, well, how long is someone going to be standing in front of this exhibit? Well, about three minutes. Well, you're in school. You're in school 20 hours a week, you know, 20, 30 hours a week for 16 years of your life, and you want to have the three minutes there in front of my exhibit to have them learn something? No. Instead, have that exhibit inspire them to want to learn something. I can inspire you in three minutes. I can't give you a lesson plan in three minutes. I can definitely blow your mind in three minutes. And that's, I think, the currency of Cosmos Mm. to the viewer.
1: Wow, well said. All right, you blew my mind in three minutes. I'll give you that That's That's really great. It's an interesting way to think about it. I I just... Oh, by the
0: way, just not to overrun the metaphor, but... If you blow someone's mind and then they reassemble it or the pieces that flew away, they might reassemble it in a slightly different way that gives them an enhanced perspective that doesn't just rehash the way they saw the world before. So mind blowing is is perspective
1: changing, metaphorically for those reasons. Very much agreed. I wanna get to search engines and confirmation bias and scientific cherry picking for a moment. How do we right now in the 21st century start to ensure that students as well as elected officials are scientifically literate and care about the science that is being presented? And I think that in your book, one of the outcomes or one of the themes that I took away was that you're concerned that sometimes this is not the case. If someone
0: writes to me, they've already gone past the threshold of curiosity where they want to get another perspective or any perspective at all, if they have none. So that already puts them in the, I'm open to hearing something new mode. There are a few letters where they're not really about that. They want to tell me what they think is true. And they want to tell me that I'm wrong and that there's nothing I can say that can influence them. These are not interesting exchanges. They don't, they're not open. They're not honest. Honest in your capacity to learn, and so, or, or your interest in learning. So, so I. Um, so the people who, but most of the people who write, they they want to hear a, a, a different reply. They want to. Well, I went to my my priest, my rabbi, my this, and I would want to hear what a scientist says. Or, that's if they have a religious question. Uh, I. Um, you know, I'm feeling this way about science, but I think it's done more harm than good. What do you say about it? Right? They're, they want to have a conversation. So for me, science literacy, well, it's good if you have it. If you don't have it, at least be prepared to have the conversation. At least at least recognize that you don't that you may not know enough to make a decision all by yourself based on science that could inform a vote or a legislation, a referendum. So for me, it's better to be, to know what it is to ask a scientist than to believe you have the answer and not ask a scientist at all. So in other words, yeah, I would like a scientifically literate leader, but if I can't get that, at least let it be a leader that knows how to listen to scientists. That's that almost just as good.
1: That's said. So right now I can go, I, I can find an article that interests me and I can, I can post that on Facebook and I could have essentially that article could be a snippet that I found on Twitter. And I can think that I have the entire picture that I understand the problem that is taking place because I've watched one five minute YouTube video seen two Instagram posts and this echo chamber that I've lived in has just reinforced everything. What, how do you how do you make informed decisions when it comes to let's say voting? What, what process do you do you undertake to understand enough to feel like you have enough information to actually speak about it? Well, the
0: science literacy helps when it involves issues that involve science. So that would be climate and energy and on, um, what else, uh, you know, resources, resource management. You know, there's a certain fluency being a scientist. You get that for free, just being a scientist. But uh, for me, I listen for the possibility that I could be lied to. And I've said multiple times that that um, science literacy is basically inoculation against bullshit. That's really what it is. And if, if I'm scientifically literate and you wanna sell me something that's just not quite going on with the, 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 how nature works, I will call it out on the spot because I have the power and knowledge and wisdom to do so. Uh, if you're not scientifically literate, then you should just ask questions. If someone wants to sell you crystals, and they say, oh, buy these crystals or these feathers and they'll, make, they'll heal you. And they just, just ask questions. Well, what's the mechanism by which it works? Uh, how, when, and where was this tested? Where are the results? I'd like to see the, you know. And after a while, the person gives up and goes on to the next person they want to sell their wares to. Because your curiosity and your skepticism dismantled the ex, the, the tower of explore, exploitation Um on which they were standing. So yeah, I, uh, I try to see what, if they're lying, would they have motivation to lie? If I don't know this answer for sure, where can I look it up? Oh, what is the background of these sources? By the way, just because um, someone is paid by an industry and gets an answer that agrees with the industry, doesn't mean that the answer is wrong. (laughs) Okay. It just means you just want to look a little more closely at it. All right. I've seen people said, oh, they're paper. So I'm not going to believe anything they say. No, that is, it is equally as intellectually lazy to reject everything you hear as it is to accept everything you hear. It's much harder to ask questions. And that's unfortunate because that should be a fundamental feature of what it is to be human in the 21st century. And it doesn't appear to be so.
1: I'm going to quote you on that inoculation against bullshit in future. <laughs> I think I, there's a tweet that carries that at some point. You can find it. Are, are you familiar with the, um, the the Gini index or the Gini coefficient as an economic instrument? Yes,
0: I yes, I am. Well, we um, it's a general it's it's a it's a general mathematical yeah. um, representation uh, that has uh, wonderful use in economics, but we also occasionally use it in astrophysics when we have two different variables and you can have a different amount of either, and mm. the, are, are they all have it equal or just all in one and not the other. So yes, I am familiar with the Gini coefficient.
1: Awesome. The, the, the reason I ask is because your answer is making me think of it. And, you know, in economics, we, we use the Gini coefficient to be able to say this is the disparity of country wealth, Right. And that's what's high- especially
0: used in that context. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it, what does it remind me if a, a Gini coefficient of one would mean one person has all the wealth and everyone else has no wealth. Is that correct?
1: Yes. And is and it a half low. or
0: zero where there's an even amount spread
1: to everyone? Exactly. So okay. the lower the number, the greater the...
0: Right. So a Gini coefficient of zero, everyone has exactly the same wealth. Okay. So, so most capitalist countries... A lean towards rich people having that much more wealth. And so that Gini coefficient would be high as it surely is in the United States and Brazil and um, a little less so in Europe, but yeah.
1: Yeah. So South Africa, for example, is the most disparate country with, I believe it's a 56 or a 60 range. Um, and then Norway- Wait, The Gini
0: coefficient is 50 or 60, yeah. is that right? Okay. Yeah.
1: And that's percent. And then um, Norway is in the the 26% range, so quite a bit lower. But the reason I mention this is because what this is getting me to think about is it's nice to have a snapshot where you can say, OK, this is this is the wealth disparity of a place. And can you imagine like I'd love to just brainstorm this idea with you for a moment. But can you imagine if you had, let's say, the Tyson Knowledge Index, which essentially before I post a link on Facebook or something, it's like, OK, which. Are you, do you lean to the right or to the left? You lean to the right. How long have you consistently voted this way? Five years? You click that button. Okay, based on the answers you're giving and this article you're about to share, we recommend you read these four articles for a slightly more balanced opinion.
0: (laughs) Well, so, except, except, Mm -hmm. um, what does balanced mean, right? So, So, I'm telling you earth is round, And Someone else will say well for a balanced view read all this literature on earth being flat Then you'll have a balanced view. There is a point in science where it's not about balance. It's about you're freaking wrong Okay, you are not engaged in objectively real arguments So it's not a matter of finding a balance. It's a matter of knowing you're wrong in those views now if it's pure opinion like should you not whether or not humans are warming the earth which many politicians like to think is still uh, you know, uh, still up for, up, up, up for grabs, it's given that humans are warming the world, do we, have, um, do we invest, does a nation invest in its green infrastructure? Does it put tariffs on imported solar panels? Do you have a carbon tax? All of those are political conversations that have political solutions. I don't have a problem with where you land on in that conversation. I'd want you to be fully informed though, but, and then have it come emerge from your life experience and your opinion. And I'm not going to fight you about that, but don't believe you have all the information if you don't, and don't think something that is objectively false is somehow true just because you want it to be true or because you need it to be true. So, Uh, So that would be good. Uh, By the way, I met once with one of the founders of Wiki, and they were concerned because many pages were getting, uh, I think there's a word for it, where it gets uh, bombed by someone who just goes through and puts wrong information or slants it one way or another. And they wanted to keep it open source, but you can't do that if you have nefarious people out there who don't share your mission statement. So he was, went around soliciting opinions. I offered, I thought was a very good opinion about what he should do. They never did this though. I thought this is what they should do. If you value keeping it open source, there should be, a, um, there should be an index of instability. Okay? Mm-hmm. So the index of instability is at what rate do people change information on that page? that's a different measure from the rate at which people add information. So let's say you're a celebrity and then you get married. Well, someone quote changes the page because they add to it, right? That wouldn't, that would count differently in this index than saying than changing the meanings of sentences within the document. Okay. So now you're a middle schooler and you need to do some homework. And so you go to the internet and you find a wiki page and it has a very high instability index. That would tell you that this information is contested. By whatever reason, it is contested heavily. So if you're gonna base your report on what you see in this document, this document could be different tomorrow compared with today, and maybe you should step back and do some more research on that topic. If it has a low uh, index, then it means the information is stable. So uh, that for me, that would be the kind of index you're reaching for there.
1: All right. So two last questions. The first is you were pulled over in New Jersey for, I believe, a perceived disparity between how new your plates were and the age of your car. And that was the rationale that the police officer gave you. Not
0: initially. Not initially. That's what they told me afterwards. Uh, Because that itself is not a crime, of course. Um, but this was it was very late, like eleven thirty at night on a weekday, and I changed lanes in a completely wide open street uh without using my directionals. And I was pulled over ostensibly for that. And only at the end did he say, The real reason why I pulled you over is because your place didn't match and we wanted to make sure the car was stolen or whatever. So um that's how that went
1: down. So I, I wanted to understand just Growing up in, in the U.S. and, you know, in the, in the 60s through 80s, what type of, well, what type of, did you feel that you had equal opportunity and that, that you, because you have accomplished, you know, what, what you have accomplished is, is exceptional. And I am interested in understanding how much you have had to actually overcome from the scientific community, from various other communities to, to get to where you are.
0: So it depends on how, you know, Martin Luther King once said, you can only be ridden if your back is bent. So there's a level at which you, you persist. And if you don't persist, you die, right? So you persist if your ambitions are strong and authentic and, and deep as mine were. So, What am I overcoming? I'm overcoming teachers who have no no sense of my ambitions, have no support for my ambitions, who recommend things for me that don't fulfill my ambitions. These are people throughout my educational arc who seems to me should be there to support your ambitions, not get in the way of them. So these are things I needed to overcome. By the way, I have stories from my parents, a generation before me, where nothing that happened in my life comes close to an average story that they could tell about what they experienced. So I'm, I'm not here begging sympathy, okay? Or claiming victimhood. I'm simply saying that I needed energy Emotional and physical energy to not have these occasions stop me For me to continue. This is the persist you persist because you have energy to do so and uh, At no time in my schooling did any teacher ever say of me Watch him. He'll go far. Oh why he's one, he's watching And they didn't now my grades didn't earn that compliment, okay They would only say that to people who got straight A's. And so, no, I'm not there. But then they see I have some athletic talent and, oh, you should be an athlete. Why don't you be an athlete? Well, the 1960s and 70s, all the famous black people anyone ever knew were athletes. or if They weren't that. They were singing and dancing. So, um, oh, my gosh, I became an athlete and a dancer. That's kind of, what does that even mean? Did I become an athlete and a dancer more out of fulfillment of the expectations of society than out of my own personal ambitions i don't know that i'll ever have the answer to that question nonetheless throughout all of this i persisted and um you know right on through graduate school through professional life things people say to me and i you know taxis that don't pick you up all right. Fortunately, that number has dropped precipitously over the last two, uh, since 1990, I kept track of this. Um, that was when I moved back, uh, late 80s, moved back to New York City. And you can, there's a very, it's a very, um, uh, it's a, very um, a quantifiable metric, what fraction of taxis will pick me up, and what what, what fraction will not. And so that's gotten much better without regard to my fame or anything. So I can wear a hat and glasses. All they see is that I'm a black male and that's their signal. And that's what they cue on. So you know, I'd live with this. It's same shit, different day, uh, except it's getting better. And by the way, the, 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 the highly uh, publicized deaths at the hands of police um, that, that, used to happen and you would never know about it. It would barely make the local news. So in a curious perverse way, the fact that if that happens anywhere in the country now, the whole country knows about it, that's kind of a perverse progress. Do I, should I call it progress? I don't know. But um, the local deaths of police killing unarmed black people was local news when I grew up, barely local news. So we have come a, a long way, at least f- in terms of, of social, cultural, political activism
1: mm-hmm. with
0: regard to this. And so that's, that's a good thing. But my parents trained me, my brother, and my sister how to not get shot by the police in the street. And by the way, I only, other than that letter that I posted, I hardly ever talk about it. Um, There's some highly viewed videos of me talking about it. That was the last two minutes of an hour long panel on other subjects. And people decided to sort of, well, I have a black scientist in front of me. Let me ask him a black question. So uh, professionally, I don't ever really talk about this. Uh, Not because I'm trying to hide it. It's because I'm trying to move on and I'm trying to live my life as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Not as a black scientist, not as your example of a black scientist, not as the person who you're going to call on to tell you what to do about how to think about black people. No, I'm not that person for you. I'm a scientist. And so that's why I, I don't engage in these things generally. Well, and, and in that essay that I wrote, that's everything I have to
1: say on the subject. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You new know, one last question for you. And mm-hmm. that is, If you had a year left right now, what would be one final contribution that you would want to leave with humanity to to leave a lasting impact in in the 21st century?
0: Uh, It's not how I think about my life. I don't think about it as leaving an impact because I don't really care. I'll be dead. Um, I don't need my name remembered. I don't need need any of that. Um, If I had one year left, I knew that uh, I would reorder the priorities in my life there are two books i still have to write that are in me that i that i don't see anyone talking about these themes and subjects and so i think it would make it would be a useful contribution to people's to the dialogues of society and so i would i would put those on a fast track I then greatly enhanced the quality time I'd spend with my loved ones and, um, and then as I near the end, I'd be glad that there existed a chromosomal comb- combination that was me. And I would have the consciousness that I did to be in this world because most combinations of the human genome will never be realized as humans. That's how many possible humans there could be—trillions. So the fact that we—and I quote loosely quote um, Richard Dawkins—where we're the luck, we die, and that makes us the lucky ones, because most humans who could ever exist will never even be born. So I, I will sort of celebrate all that I can, and like I said, spend time with the remaining time with loved ones. That's what I would do if I knew I only had one year left.
1: One one thing that I just want to clarify, when I say leave a lasting impact, I'm by no means saying that that is ego-driven. I'm saying th- this is the contribution or this is what you want to do to positively impact humanity. Um,
0: I, I think the world, for any of us, the world should be better off for us having lived in it. Uh, otherwise, you become a drain on the progress of civilization. So, So... I think that's a simple statement of human mission, not a statement of well, "I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson." What impact do I want? No, I don't. I don't even. I, I would publish these books, you know, under a pseudonym if that. <laughs> if people wondered about it, I don't care. I really don't, and I would know what my epitaph would read. A quote from Horace Mann, where he said. Be ashamed to die until you have scored some victory for humanity. And for me, that's poetic words for leave the world better off for you having been in it.
1: Neil, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. Really. All
0: right, all right, good. And good luck with the series and with the with your the mission statement of the projects.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century, which was sponsored by RBC. We're truly grateful for RBC's sponsorship, which helps Simbi Foundation further our mission to support the next 3.5 million learners in refugee settlements. So how do we do this? We collaborate with the UN and incredible partner communities to build solar-powered classrooms called Bright Boxes. You can learn more at simbifoundation.org. If you enjoyed this episode and think a family member, friend, or co-worker would also enjoy it, feel free to share. A personal message goes a long way and will help us invite more awesome guests to join the conversation surrounding positive impact. But the conversation doesn't end here, and I'd love for you to join the discussion. So please leave a comment or reach out on social media to let us know what you thought about today's episode. In the meantime, wishing you all the best, and I hope you join us for our next episode.